Hi there. This is Miley with the Divided Families podcast, but I'm actually going to take off my podcast hat for a bit and put on my Fulbright Program alumni hat to tell you about this amazing new project we're about to embark upon in collaboration with the podcast. So, back in the spring, Paul came to Eugene and me with an idea. He had heard of this opportunity called the Citizen Diplomacy Action Fund, a grant sponsored by the U.S. Department of State's Bureau of Educational and Cultural Affairs. The grant was for alumni of U.S. government-sponsored exchange programs, which, surprise, half of our team are proud Fulbright Korea alumni. So, Eugene proposed a project titled Stories of Family Separation, Oral Histories of the Cold War. Our project, which we won our first ever grant for, huzzah, is allowing us to provide honorariums for speakers, audio editors, and it's really allowing us to elevate DFP to a whole new level. And none of this would be possible without your support. As listeners, you keep us motivated to shed light on narratives of family separation and reunification worthy of being recorded. So thank you, thank you, thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Thank you so much for your feedback and your support on all of our episodes. It really means a lot to us. This first episode for our Cold War series actually starts in Laos. In this conversation, Eugene sits down with Sarah Kulabdara, the Executive Director of Legacies of War, an educational and advocacy organization dedicated to raising awareness about the history of the Vietnam War era bombing in Laos. Legacies of War is doing groundbreaking work to educate people on the American secret war in Laos, and Sarah is the first of three interviews we did in our attempt to bring attention to the lasting impacts of Cold War era violence in Southeast Asia that is often overlooked. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Eugene and Sarah. Welcome back to the Divided Families podcast. This is Eugene. Today, we're honored to be here with Sarah Gulabdala, who serves as the Executive Director of Legacies of War. That's the only international U.S.-based advocacy and educational organization working to address the impact of the American secret war in Laos and the conflict in its uh, neighboring countries of Cambodia and Vietnam during the Vietnam War era. And this includes the removal of unexploded ordinances, or UXOs. And for people who don't know what that is, like I had to also... Google it basically um, are unexploded bombs as far as I can understand and uh, I'm sure that Sarah will elaborate on this in our conversation and also she works on with Legacies of War works on uh, victims and survivor assistance so uh, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us here today thanks Eugene I'm glad to be here this is just a short anecdote but most recently a couple of our members uh, were able to meet in person for the first time in DC at Laos in town I don't know if you know that restaurant in like the Noma ish area um, and also before then, when I lived in D.C., Tip Cow was also one of uh, my friend group's like favorite restaurants. So I don't think that I knew much about Louts other than those restaurants. Um, and I think that it's just been as I've been doing, you know, some preparation for this conversation, I'm realizing like how little I know and how much that, you know, people should probably know. Uh, I'm not going to go into a whole whole historical um, detail, you know, overview, but. Uh, The very, very brief context that you'll at least have to know um, as a listener is between uh, 1964 and 1973, the U.S. dropped more than 2 million tons of bombs on Laos, more than the total dropped on Germany and Japan combined during World War II. Um, And today, uh, the UXOs, or unexploded bombs, remain, which makes a lot of, uh, well, number one, it's dangerous, but number two, it makes a lot of the land in Laos unusable. 
Uh, and this was, uh, I just mentioned that it was called the Secret War. It was secret on purpose, um, aimed to s- disrupt the supply chains between Laos and Vietnam. So I think that's the general gist. Is there anything else that you'd like to add for basic historical context? No, no, I think you you cover it um, in the most like simple form, right? Like um, from 1964 to 1973, over 2.5 million tons of bombs were dropped in Laos, right? So that is... Um, that is a lot of bombs. You mentioned that that's more than Japan and Germany combined. So all World War II combined. Um, and Laos is a very, very small country. So this cover about a third of the countries. And unexploded ordnance bombs, you know, there, there's so many names for it. But the ones that we mainly talk about when it comes to Laos is the one that I'm holding here. So this is a small cluster bomb. It's, it's the size of a tennis ball, right? What happens is when a plane load of these is dropped, it comes in a big shell. And when the shell expands, it's around like 400 to 600 of these bombs that's scattered all throughout. So roughly a third of Laos is still covered in these, and that's why it's still relevant today. And, you know, from a historical standpoint, the intention was to destroy the the soldiers, right, the Vietnamese soldiers and to disrupt the routes, but 90% of the casualties of these bombs are civilians, everyday people who are farmers, uh, many of them never seen a plane in their lives. How would you describe Laos to someone who like doesn't know anything about Laos, basically? And I understand that's like a very unfair question in many ways. It's like, if someone asked me, can you explain to me Korea? I'd be like, why is that my job to explain Korea to you? So I understand it's an unfair question, but also, I mean, yeah, I'm just going to ask it anyway, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Like, how would you describe the culture? What's beautiful about Laos? Uh, what is Laos aside from like what we would imagine it as a place of these bombings? No, I actually really appreciate this question because, um, you know, Laos is so much more than being the most bombed country per capita in history, right? What I remember most is just the smell of the rice field, the smell of um, Laos's national flower, the jampa, and the friendliness of the people, you know, and the vibrancy of, of Lao culture, which the, the Lao government recognized over 69 different ethnic tribal groups, each with its own language and culture. And then when you break that down even more, is over 200 sub-ethnic tribal groups that make up this, this tiny little country. So, you know, and for me, being a Lao Lum, which is the lowland Lao, I only speak one of those languages and, and, and know the culture of that particular group intimately. Um, the food, of course, you mentioned the cow earlier and Laos in town. Um, the flavor, you know, ranges from north to south to middle and the pristine um, beauty of the country, like Bolovan Plateau, Si Pandan or 4,000 Islands, um, the Mekong River, you know, the mountain and the different landscape. It's not just one different type, right? Like you can see so many different things in this small country. Mm-hmm. And just to like shift into a little bit of your family's personal stories, could you tell us a little bit more about how the bombing shaped your family and trajectories? In 1964, when the bombing started, uh, my parents were both 14 years old. It, it's, it's wild for me to think about because it really isn't that long ago, right? It's about 50 years ago. During that time, my dad being the eldest son, you know, of the nine in his family, his parents sent him to Vientiane, the capital. So we live in the southern part in Baxi, Jambasak. So he went to the north, um, to the capital of Laos, 
and he lived with monks and temples and, you know, mainly went to school back and did some farming on the side. But in 1964, that all changed when the first bombs were dropped in Laos. My dad being 14 um, was only about three blocks away from the first plane load of bombs. And this disruption, you know, imagine this is during a time where they didn't have social media. You know, there is no TikTok, no IG to inform people what was happening. People were thinking like, what, you know, what is going on? And it was all chaos. I guess like, you know, one of the memories of me growing up when I asked my parents about this is my mom having to stop not just her educational uh, school, like academic, but she had to pause learning classical dance. And that was something that, you know, it's like this war robbed her of her childhood. You know, originally my dad was going to become a politician, like a, um, like a chief of, of one of the villages, right? That was his dream. But seeing some of um, the, the damage done to just people that he grew up knowing, seeing people's dead bodies lying around, you know, as they're trying to cross the Mekong River to safety, really changed him. And that's when he decided to become a doctor. Having, having that change in, in what he intended to do and what he intended to be, that's what made him decide not to flee Laos because he felt like he could be helpful staying behind. And for my mother, you know, um, she she's became a seamstress and she's still a seamstress to this day. I get everything altered by her. And, you know, I remember seeing my mom having to adjust, you know, items of clothing and many of them children my own age due to them losing an arm or a leg to these UXO, right? And, you know, like, I think that is like the turning point in my family was when um, I became old enough to be able to go to school. I still remember my dad saying like to myself and my younger brother, Mickey, this is the only path that you're allowed to take. Do not veer off or the tigers and the nagas and the pee or ghosts will come and get you. And, you know, that was just something that many parents told their children. I guess it's, it's a way for them to hide the fact of history that's very painful for them, right? And that's something that they didn't want to burden their children with. And sending my brothers and I off to school for my parents was a risk. Like, number one, are we going to come back? Number two, if we do come back, are we going to be in one piece? That's when they made the decision to uproot the family and move us to the United States. I, Laos just, I guess, became like a, a distant memory, you know, because I knew that there was a war, but my parents just made it seem like it was so long ago. And, you know, you guys weren't even born yet. It's, it's fine. We're safe now. And just focus on your education, focus on learning English, focus on just, just living here in our new home, right? It wasn't until 2015 when my older brother uh, was working in Washington, D.C., um, and he sent me the link to Legacy's website. I started learning like just the history between Laos and U.S. That's when I started volunteering and then eventually serving on the board. And in 2019, uh, Jennifer retired and I became the executive director. Um, and, you know, here we are today. Um, and I wouldn't have known just the extent of this history had I not 
learn about legacies of war and the work, right? Like, because, you know, I was questioning myself, like, why is there an organization that's advocating for the removals of bombs and victims' assistance? Like, why does that even exist? I thought the war was over. Shouldn't everything be all fine? But no, 30% of the bombs that were dropped didn't explode. It didn't detonate on impact meaning that until they explode, they will remain in the ground, right? Out of all the accidents that's related to these cluster bombs in the entire world, 50% of them occur in Laos. That's how heavily bombed Laos is. And that, you know, just really stuck with me. And I just felt like um, this is, you know, what I'm intended to do. And, and just being a Lao American, I feel like you have to do something to help um, help Laos move forward, but, you know, more importantly, make sure that the victims and survivors' voices are heard, because many times we don't hear about them. I think that is something that, you know, once you learn and once you hear, you just can't turn away. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I resonate a lot with that, especially because, I mean, how this podcast came to be was I went to Korea on the Fulbright Grant, and I didn't know that much about being Korean-American or Korean history. I, I'm obviously not an executive director of anything, but um, I think that it kind of does, um, it kind of is really difficult to say like, okay, I learned all this history and I'm not going to do anything about it afterwards. Um, and also, and also, I guess I just resonate a lot with um, what you said about how your family had difficulty like sharing these stories, because that's one of the reasons why like I didn't know that much <laughs> growing up. It's like, this is not something that, you know, a kid should worry about. And I guess that kind of turns to another question, which was uh, you mentioned that it was difficult for your parents to kind of share these stories. And I mean, you gave a great you know, oral history of their story. So at some point they must have told you. But um, how do you I guess like how do you um, understand like the point at which storytelling is like no longer painful and like more of a healing process or something that um, can be helpful to the person who experienced um, these, you know, difficult times? My brother-in-law is actually Korean and, you know, we exchange stories all the time about this. I don't think number one is ever going to be no longer painful, right? This is one of the biggest reasons why it makes our work so difficult because the majority of my staff have some sort of personal connection to the mission, right? And, and our board members as well. And this doesn't necessarily um, have to be just like, um, a person who's Lao American or Hmong American or another ethnic tribal group that is from Laos. But this is an American story. This is American history, right? Like we were involved. Just to share, you know, something, a uh, quick stat, over 700 Americans died in Laos. And many of them, you know, their families are still wanting to uncover the remains of their bodies. So, you know, the connection isn't just about like Lao Americans is the point I'm trying to make. But, you know, for me, I think we encourage storytelling because knowing our history and sharing it makes a huge impact because that influences funding, U.S. funding to remove these bombs, you know, assist with survivors, assist in providing more prosthetics to children, right? Like, and maybe addressing in the future, the environmental impact that these bombs have being left in the ground, chemicals seeping into the soil and the water, right? Legacy is that space and it's where people feel safe to share. But just on a personal note, um, just remembering things like 
me dropping a pan in the kitchen and my father, you know, just being in shock. War movies, war scenes where my parents just kind of turn away made, started to make sense to me. But my dad didn't actually open up until 2017 when I spent the last three months of his life with him in a hospital. And this coincidentally was the same year that I became vice chair of the Legacies Board. And that was when my parents, you know, both of them actually, I think it was a way to finally share and, you know, lift that burden and make sure that it's not forgotten, right? Like just to, in a way, like teach us how resilient, you know, our people are and why it matters. And to me, it was his way of telling me like how proud he was of me doing this work. And in a way, you know, um, forgiving me for not becoming a doctor <laughs> like him, but, but still doing something to heal humanity, right? Like to try to resolve some of the conflict that still plagues the people of Laos and Americans today. And that was when he actually shared all the stories that I just told you earlier. And that was also when he told me, you know, his hope of what he hoped to be able to see, like hope that no family should have to feel forced to leave their homeland because they're fearing the lives for their, the lives of their children. While it's painful, I want to preserve this. And this is exactly why like legacy exists to make sure that the history is not forgotten, but to also show that this is a contemporary issue. While there's not a, a full-scale war happening at the moment, people's lives are still in danger. The environment is still in danger. Animals' lives are still in danger. Yeah, thank you so much for your family story. And I guess I was really, really moved by um, your coverage of uh, this book. Could you tell us a little bit about like Voices from the Plain of Jars? So this is such a special book uh, to this portion of American history, in my opinion. Um, so all of this is a compilation, firsthand account, um, filled with illustrations and written oral history of the people who fled the bombings in Laos. And it's collected by uh, an American named Fred Brantman, who was working for the International Voluntary Services at the time as an educator. And his uh, Lao colleague, Bun Muang Rongbasa, helped translate and help collect these stories from the refugees that they were seeing fleeing into Vientiane during the late 60s and 70s. So all of these, which I'll show you and, and listeners can go to our website and see some of the illustrations that were made by the people fleeing Laos um, themselves. And Legacies of War owns the original of these illustrations. And that is something that uh, we want to work to preserve, right? And make sure that we are able to tour with these and share it with the world. I think like one of the most haunting one is one that's done by a 16 year old child and in the picture you'll see a school and planes dropping bombs on the school and the school is on fire and the caption reads the school was on fire people were screaming and there were dead bodies but i was afraid to look and i ran and as a 16 year old child witnessing his school being burned, um, being destroyed, witnessing his classmates, his teachers 
being killed by the bombing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I, I forgot to make this point earlier, but I I had asked a question earlier about like did, just to kind of round out, did you have any uh, positive memories of Laos before moving into the bombings and how they kind of changed your family's career trajectories? As you were answering that question, I kind of realized the good um, was tied up kind of inherently in uh, what makes it so tragic, right? It's like your parents had to change things that they their aspirations and things like your aspirations should be kind of positive things, right? Like these dreams that you have and they're radically changed instantly. Same thing with like a 16 year old kid at school, like going to school should be like a positive thing. Uh, Growing up, going to school should be, you know, like a general memory of your youth. And then it just becomes something that is, yeah. You know, the picture for me shows that this is the untold story. This is the unheard voice of this time because they're no, no longer with us or it's too painful for them to tell their story or they're trying to hide this image from their memory, right? But it also shows that when war happens, the innocents are the ones that are harmed the most, right? And we're seeing this um, today when bombs are being dropped on school in Ukraine. You know, the most important reason why the originals or these illustrations for us and for Legacy's work is so, so important is because when Fred Brantman brought these illustrations to the U.S., he actually used it to testify in front of Congress in 1970. And that is the reason why the bombing stopped in 1973, because Americans finally learned what was happening, because it was a secret operation conducted by the CIA. And Americans were outraged. And I think this kind of ties into your question about, you know, the storytelling aspect of, of not just um, healing the individual telling the story and working towards that, but healing can only come when action is taken to resolve these deadly legacies. And that is, you know, one of the reasons why the story firsthand account is so important because it turned how U.S. policy, it shaped U.S. policy. Yeah, I, I really like that. I mean, so I was an English literature major, so I know all about, you know, just like the healing property. Well, I don't know all about it, but uh, there is a little bit of coursework on, you know, like the healing properties of storytelling. I'm not a, you know, counselor or anything like that. But um, I think that what you said about how, uh, you know, you have to, uh, I guess, like firsthand accounts um, and these people who provide them are overcoming kind of this pain, but it's because they have a hope that, you know, something will change down the line. And I think that that's a... Uh, you know, as at least for our project on oral histories, is a kind of like a big insight, at least for me. And I hope that uh, people can, you know, remember that um, as they listen to some of our other oral histories. Uh, so as we kind of move towards the end, uh, I just wanted to ask, um, obviously, we're the Divided Families podcast. Um, you've spoken a lot about family, but I was wondering um, whether it be your families. Uh, it's, it sounds like your entire family moved together to the U.S., so maybe there wasn't as much separation there thankfully, but what is the relationship between family separation and Laos? For my family, um, the majority had to flee. And a big bulk um, went to the U.S. And the other portion is in France. And others are kind of scattered in Canada. Choosing which country to flee to, it all depended on that country's policy on like how many people they're going to take. And for us, I only have like a very small portion still left in the South. And I mentioned that my father chose to stay. Um, You know, he could have fled, but he chose to stay. And that's why my family ended up not coming to the U.S. until later. Uh, The biggest thing that I've 
I start to realize now that I'm older is how long it took for my family to reunite. And like my, my mom, for example, um, we're, so we came to the U.S. in like 1990. It wasn't until like 1992 or 1993 that she got to be reunited with her older brother. And that's like two decades later. And right when we landed in the U.S., my dad hasn't seen his sisters and his brother for also two decades, you know, but just asking them like, so how did you guys eventually find each other? You know, with no social media, no anything. And it was really letter writing back to the people who remain in Laos and asking them, did you hear from so-and-so? Did you hear from this? And then having that person connect them. And this is all done through airmail. It's pretty fascinating. What's, um, what's something that my parents and my aunts and uncles never talk about is how, how devastating it is to be separated from your siblings, right? Like, and from your mom, because my grandma ended up fleeing to France during this time. And all those years of loss, you know, memories that you could have shared, lives that you could have shared. For me, you know, meeting my two cousins for the first time, I immediately connect with them because I know they're my blood, you know, I know their family. But how much I actually know about them, I had to learn, like trying to learn 20 years of their lives. It's a very difficult task. Mm -hmm. When I was visiting or when I was in Korea for my Fulbright grant, it was really weird sometimes to meet uh, older because I'm the oldest uh, in my family, I guess, like in the U.S. Um, so I had no, you know, like older cousins or siblings or anything. Um, and then when I met some of them in uh, or I guess one of them in Korea, it was a little bit of like, Oh, like my life would have been different if I had, you know, someone older than me just around, I guess, to kind of tell me things. So like, yeah, there's a little bit of I mean, I think the loss of that, like, is overshadowed by like how good it is to see them. But um, yeah, it's just kind of uh, something that you take for granted if you have, you know, lots of family in the U.S. I just wanted to kind of end with you've done some like advocacy on the Hill and then also a virtual library that you or uh, Legacies of War has launched. Um, so I was wondering about that. And I guess looking as I was looking at the library, I was really moved by um, one of the quotes about how these firsthand stories kind of change the way that you see the, the numbers, like even if it's just one firsthand account. And you can you could say like millions of tons of bombs or millions of people, but uh, it's like really hard to, you know, understand what that means. But when you have at least one story, uh, it's a lot easier to imagine. So I was wondering yeah, if you can tell us about your most recent advocacy efforts. And then after that, it's just anything else you'd like to add as well. We started advocating for funding to remove these bombs and to encourage more funding to address victims' assistance in 2008. And so from that time, 2008, uh, funding was, you know, roughly, it was still under 10 million. All the way to today, uh, 2022, funding is at 45 million for Laos, 19 million for Vietnam, and 9 million for Cambodia. So we added Cambodia and Vietnam to our advocacy effort in 2019, um, just simply because, you know, if you look at the history and just the impact that war had on these three countries, all three countries are still trying to work on the same, same issue. So each year, what we do is we push for funding for Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. And this current ask that we have to Congress is $80 million for Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam, with 50 million of that going to Laos. 
So just next month, we're launching our annual Southeast Asian campaign in like mid-September. So follow us on our website, social media to learn more about it. You know, it takes 10 seconds to do click, click, click. We populate for you, you know, depending on your address, who your member of Congress is and a pre-draft letter that you can just hit send. If you're, you know, someone who likes making calls, you could also do that as well. And we provide a script for you to help do that. And this, uh, this year, you know, we have a goal of getting 10,000 letters sent. That is an enormous goal. So we need all the help that we can get. You know, we talk to demining teams that are in country. We talk to government officials. You know, we talk to people who are doing like some of the in-country work on providing like aid to victims on what is the need and what are some of the challenges and where can we help? And the biggest way that we can help is making sure that there is U.S. funding allocated each year. I'll add that none of the money that we advocate for comes to legacies of war. We're super small, shoestring budget. We do not take any of that money because we feel that it should go straight into country to address these problems. So that's the first thing that we do, and we do this every single year. <laughs> the second thing is uh, we partner with um, our friends at MAG and Halo again to recruit members of the house to join the UXO and Demining Caucus. And this caucus um, is led by Congresswoman Jackie Spear from California and Congressman Bill Johnson from my home state of Ohio. So they're both co-chairing this. And what this caucus does is it really, really educate the public on global demining issues. So, you know, we're currently at 46 members that have joined this caucus and we're looking to recruit um, four more by September. So if you want to help, you know, make phone calls or write letters to your representatives, um, you could reach out to one of us at Legacies. We have a template that you can use. So that's the second thing that um, that is currently what we're working on. But one of the biggest um, achievements, you know, and something that we're really, really proud of is the Legacies of War and UXO Removal Act. Um, this is a piece of legislation that was first introduced by um, Senator Baldwin from Wisconsin. And this bill, if passed, would do two things. So first, it would recognize all who fought alongside American troops. So this is inclusive of Vietnamese, Cambodians, um, Laotians, and all ethnic tribal members who were fighting on the side of the U.S. So it recognized them for their contribution. The second, and to me is the most important, is that it would authorize $100 million for the next five fiscal year to Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam to resolve the issues of demining and victims assistance. We also work with various partners, uh, key stakeholders, to host um, educational briefings um, and events. Uh, one coming up um, is an August 31st, and unfortunately for East Coast folks, it's at 6 a.m. Um, so, but it'll be, I think it's gonna be recorded. But this is part of um, the upcoming Convention on Cost Munition. It's a side event. So this is the 10th uh, meeting of states party, and it's hosted in Geneva each year. Um, so we're part of the side events where we'll be addressing um, 
the issue of unexplored ordinance as it relates to the environment. And we'll be putting out some more information on this on our uh, social media platforms and newsletters coming up. But, you know, there's, there's so many things that we do and we work on um, and it's continuous because there's still uh, very, very little awareness, right? Like this is not a part of American history that many people know about. So, you know, we exist because we want to make sure that um, we educate not only members of Congress and their staff, but the broader public, because that is what will make a difference. That is what gives organizations like Legacies doing this advocacy work the power to make changes, you know, to influence funding, to influence various policies that we care about that would make you know, Miles a safer uh, place for its people, but to also make sure that we hold our own country accountable. Yeah, thank you so much for all of the uh, very clear action items, because sometimes we end our podcast episodes with like, what do we do? Um, there are some of these things that are not super clear and cut, but these are all very uh, clear action. So thank you for that. And um, I think I was really moved by uh, the solidarity between different organizations and different groups. And I think um, what you've been repeating in terms of how this is an American kind of problem uh, or something to address that is an American story and not just the Laos one um, or Laotian one is uh, important. And also, I guess part of the rationale for doing this kind of Cold War oral histories project is to kind of look at it all as one thing instead of looking at it as individual pieces. So uh, thanks for connecting those dots. It's makes my job easy so um is there anything else you'd like to add other than that or um yeah is there anything else yeah no no just really really thank you eugene for um coordinating this and reaching out to us like we're so thrilled to be a part of uh, the conversation and to listeners out there you know um, we're super small shoestring organization there's only myself and two and a half other staff members but we try to also have at least one or two interns year-round so, you know, please uh, reach out to us if you like to connect, learn more, find ways to be involved. You know, we will meet you where you're at. You know, if you just want to do volunteer work, intern, uh, become a donor, you know, we're always looking for funding. Please visit our website, follow us on social media, connect with us. Uh, we'll be happy to hear from you. Thanks so much for tuning into the Divided Families podcast. We really hope you enjoyed this story as part of our Oral Histories of the Cold War series. We are still looking for interviewees, so if you or someone you know has a story of family separation surrounding the Cold War, Vietnam War, the Berlin Wall, the Taiwan Strait, Cuba, or the Dirty War in Argentina, just to name a few, please reach out to us at dividedfamiliespodcast at gmail.com. To learn more about our project, follow us on social media at dividedfamiliespodcast. As always, thanks to Flannel Albert for the music. See you next time.